Hey y'all, what's up? My name is Dylan Braddock and I serve as a student coordinator here. And I'm super glad you're joining us for worship this morning. I think this is the beginning of one of the best weeks of the entire year. We got spring break for all our kids out there. Y'all don't sound excited, great. There we go. Um, We have the Houston Rodeo, I've already been once, probably go two more times this week. And last but not least, the March Madness Basketball Tournament starts this week and it ends here in Houston. Uh, Don't worry, I have my Baylor Bear socks here under my boots, but I hope all your teams... Oh, there we go. I love that. I hope hope all of our teams do well this year. Um, But if you're new to the story, welcome. We're in the middle of our first ever mega series called Physician and the Facts. And it has been a walk through the entire book of Luke um, that started before Christmas, and it's going to go all the way through Easter. So it's been a trek, but we've loved every step of the way. And we're just really glad to be... Y'all are with us this morning. So today, our preaching calendar that me and Pastor Kale and Pastor Eric and Orlando put together, it has given me the perfect text to preach on. And that is when Jesus says, let the little children come to me. So let's go ahead and just dive right into it. Um, If you want to, I would love for you to open your Bibles with me. We'll be in Luke chapter 18, and we're going to start in verse 15. So Luke chapter 18 starting in verse 15, and we'll go through 17. People were also bringing babies to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. When the disciples saw this, they rebuked them. But Jesus called the children to him and said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. It's a beautiful little passage, right? And if you grew up in church, you're probably very familiar with it. It was probably plastered all over your children's wing at your home church. But even if you didn't grow up in church, I think this is one of those passages that even non-Christians have in their mind. It might be even the picture of Jesus they think of when they hear his name. Something like this. Um, we have Jesus in this beautiful, idyllic, maybe Italian countryside, I can't really tell. And Jesus, of course, has long flowing locks. I'm sure there's blue eyes under there as well. And then you have all these kids, right, sitting up and looking at him. And there's even a couple of lambs laying there as well, right? This is the picture of Jesus that we have in our head. And this entire passage kind of seems like a layup for a student pastor, right? Preaching about Jesus, telling the little kids to come to him. But there's one little problem with that, and that is I am scared of kids. (laughs) Like straight up, I am scared of kids. I'm the student coordinator, not the children's coordinator. That's Joanne. Like put me in a room with middle school and high school guys or girls, and I'm great. I feel comfortable. I'm in my element. But put me in a room of story kids with kindergartners with finger paint all over them, and I have no idea what's going on. It's just chaos in my brain, and I don't know what to do. But what what scares me more than kids is babies. And the reason I'm scared of babies, I don't dislike them, but they're just so vulnerable and so fragile and so helpless. I'm scared if I touch them wrong or put my head on their forehead too long or like misshape their skull. I don't know. It's ridiculous, but I have this fear of babies. And I don't know about you guys, but I'm in this season of life right now where all of my friends, literally all my friends, are having babies. 
Uh, me and my wife hope to have babies someday soon, but we're not there yet. Um, but all my friends are kind of going ahead of us, so we're, we're taking notes, right? And um, thankfully, we've had the privilege of visiting a lot of these families after the newborn's been born. And every time it goes the same way, me and Jess will show up to the house, we knock on the door, the parents answer, they look like they haven't slept in four months, but they invite us into their home and we sit down on the couch and they say, do you want to hold our baby? And I'm like, no, but I don't say that. I say, yes, of course. And they give me their baby and I, I try my best to hold it, not like a sack of flour, but the whole time I just don't know what to do with my hands and I don't know how to support him. Um, and the whole time I'm kind of like freaking out in my head. And I used to think that parents asked us to hold their babies so we could just appreciate the awesomeness of it. But now I've realized parents just want you to hold their babies so they can do something else for five minutes because they've been holding these things for like six months straight. So even though I'm scared of babies, Jesus clearly isn't. He says, bring them on to me. And even more than that, Jesus says, if we want to enter the kingdom of God, which I think we all do, then we need to receive him like a child. And this is where this phrase childlike faith comes from. But this morning, I want to unpack what does that even mean, childlike faith? Because I think some of us um, are put off by the childish nature of our faith. Maybe you think that the Bible is full of fairy tales, or maybe you think that we grow out of scripture, or that belief in God is foolish or immature, but that's not childlike faith. I would call that childish faith. And that's what we're going to dive into this morning. What is the difference between childlike and childish faith? And how can we all receive Jesus together like children? So let's go back to verse 15 where we started this morning. The passage begins by saying, people were also bringing babies to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. So at this point in the Luke narrative, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. In fact, he's almost at Jerusalem. The triumphal entry is what we'll talk about next week. That's only a chapter away. So Jesus is maybe one, two, three weeks away from his death here in this moment. And all along on the way to Jerusalem, Jesus has been healing. He's been casting out demons. He's been performing miracles. And here with the babies, I think he might be doing something similar. But man, if you told me I had two weeks to live, I promise you I would not be hanging out with babies. I promise. But this tells us something about Jesus' character, right? About the people he values and the thing he values. And I, see, I think something that we need to pick up on in our own lives is if you want to know about someone, pay attention to how they spend their time. Pay attention to who they spend their time with because that explains a lot about their character. And Jesus here He's with the kids. He's with the babies. And the text doesn't tell us exactly why these kids are being brought to Jesus, but we can assume it's the same reason everyone came to Jesus, for a healing, for a blessing, for a miracle. In the first century, due to famine, disease, war, and a lack of medicine, the youth mortality rate was 50%. That means that every kid who was born only had a 50-50 shot of making it to adulthood. Isn't that unbelievable? They only had a 50-50 shot of becoming an adult. 
To put this into perspective, our modern uh, global infant mortality, or not infant mortality, our global youth mortality rate is 4%. So today, 96 out of 100 kids make it to adulthood. But in Jesus's time, only one of two did. And you have to figure that this influenced the general public's view of children. Children just weren't worth investing your time in until they became adults and you were sure they would make it. I mean, it sounds callous, but you can understand why people viewed children so differently. Biblical scholar David Garland explained the first century view of children this way. He said, children had no power, no status, and no rights. And they were regarded as insignificant and disposable. This information helps us better understand the disciples' unusual reaction in our passage. We'll pick back up in verse 15. When the disciples saw this, that being the children being brought to Jesus, they rebuked them. They rebuked the parents and the kids. But Jesus called the children to him and said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. The disciples rebuked the parents for bringing the kids to Jesus because I think they believed the children weren't worth Jesus's time. And in this, the disciples actually show us the first difference between childish and childlike faith. And I believe that is a childish faith excludes, but a childlike faith invites others in. The funny thing about this entire passage is that the disciples are being the childish ones by not letting the children come to Jesus. They're the ones who are acting like children. And I would say that the uh, disciples' behavior can be described as being bullies. I think the disciples are really being bullies here in this moment. And bullies all throughout time have used a wide variety of tactics, but what bullies always seek to do are exclude and diminish. They want to exclude people from the group and diminish their value, diminish their worth, make them feel bad about themselves, usually to make themselves feel better. And not only kids can be bullies, but I'm sure you guys have experienced that adults can be bullies as well. And we're not only bullied in school, but we can be bullied in our workplace, in our homes, or even at church. So I grew up um, out west in Midland, Texas, which was a really nice year, place to spend a lot of years of my life. Um, I loved Midland. It had a Chick-fil-A, a putt-putt, and a movie theater. What more can a kid want? Like I was, I was living the best life. And then in third grade, we moved to Kingwood, Texas, which is a small suburbia northeast of Houston. And it was a pretty big adjustment to suburbia life. I remember some of the kids at school would kind of pick on me for the way I said certain words. I kind of had an accent. And I would always say supper instead of dinner. And that really drove them crazy. And I remember being kind of out on pop culture. Like at the time, everyone was talking about this weird game called Pokemon. And I had no idea what it was. But as soon as all my friends started talking about it, I made my mom take me to Target, buy me a Game, a game Boy Color and Crystal, Pokemon Crystal, so I could be in the loop. Um, but thankfully, praise God, I really didn't have a problem making friends at school. Like I really had a great friend group and God blessed me with guys I'm still friends with uh, to this day. But it wasn't as easy at church because in Midland, I had a really awesome church home. It was a small Bible church and I loved it. 
I was part of this really cool program called Awanas. Some of y'all might have heard of it. But basically, it was like Boy Scouts for Christians. And I had this cute crown with all the jewels from all the Bible verses I memorized. And I had just a really good experience at that church in Midland. I loved it, and I learned the Bible, which is great. But when we moved to Kingwood, we tried to find a similar church, and we just couldn't find one. And at one point, I remember going to this one church on a Wednesday night, and they had a pretty good-sized youth group or kids group. And I remember going into the gym that first night, and there was like 50 kids running around the room playing basketball and Foursquare. And I'm pretty extroverted, so I decided to jump right in and start playing with the boys. So I immediately hopped into a basketball game. And I was there, I was playing, I was running around trying to get open, but no one would like ever pass me the ball. They wouldn't even look at me, wouldn't acknowledge me. And I just felt like I wasn't wanted but I'm pretty trash at basketball. So I'm like, maybe it's my fault. Maybe I'm not running the right plays. So I went to Foursquare. And at Foursquare, I had the exact same experience. No one was talking to me. No one was looking at me. No one was acknowledging me. And I remember ending that night in the corner of the gym by myself, sitting there alone, excluded by myself. And I was telling this story to my mom this week as I was talking about the sermon with her. And she felt really bad because she never knew like exactly what happened that night. And she's like, Dylan, I'm so sorry. That sounds so traumatic. I can't believe that happened to you. And I didn't know. And I'm like, mom, it wasn't traumatic. Don't worry about it. I'm fine. But the more and more I thought about that event this week, I realized I think it was pretty traumatic for me because I have very few memories from third grade like barely any at all. But that, me sitting in the corner alone by myself excluded, that is one of those core memories that stuck with me like 20 years later. And that's what exclusion does. It kicks us to the curb where we're all alone. And the interesting thing about exclusion and the interesting thing about childish faith is it doesn't have to be intentional. Sure, some of us might intentionally exclude others, but I think a lot of exclusion, especially exclusion that happens at the church, in the church, is unintentional, unintentional. We're not trying to exclude people. We just overlook them. Because I don't think these boys at that church in third grade had any ill intention. I don't think they were seeking to harm me. But by them not acknowledging me, not, in talk, not talking to me, not welcoming me, welcoming me into their games, they were excluding me, and it hurt. A childish faith doesn't accept other people when they're different. These differences could be based on how you say certain words, or your wealth, or your race, or your nationality, or your education level. It can be anything. But a childlike faith, the faith that Jesus is telling us to pursue, invites other people in. It always shares what we have been given with others. We seek to share the good news. Think about a child who's been given like really good news or a really good secret. No matter how hard they try, they cannot keep that secret. They have to tell everybody, right? They'll tell their parents, the mailman, their teacher. They don't care. Like when I was a kid, I could not keep a secret to save my life. All the other moms on the street, they would come to me when they wanted to know information about their son because they knew that I would tell them. I'm awful at keeping secrets, awful at keeping good news to myself. And if we believe, truly believe, 
that the gospel is good news or the best news, then we should have that same childlike fervor when it comes to sharing the gospel with others. We should have that same sense of joy. Because all throughout the gospel of Luke, Jesus is constantly inviting people into the kingdom of God. He invites adulterers. He invites tax collectors. He invites sinners. And now he invites the least of these, the children. But the disciples still don't get it. They're still rebuking the children and not letting them come to him. And Jesus ends up rebuking the disciples for rebuking the kids. And the disciples should have known this is coming because Jesus warned them just a chapter earlier in Luke chapter 17. Jesus told his disciples directly, things that cause people to stumble are bound to come. But woe to anyone through whom they come. It would be better to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around their neck than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. So watch yourselves. What a stern warning for the disciples and for us. Woe to someone who, become, who comes between someone else and Jesus. Because you know, Jesus can deal with circumstances getting in the way, but Jesus cannot deal with his followers getting in the way. Don't be that stone in someone else's path. Because a childish faith hinders others from experiencing Christ, but a childlike faith invites others in to experience him. And this morning, in the second difference between childish and childlike faith, I think we see the root cause of this exclusion. And that is, a childish faith is holier than now. But a childlike faith is humble. It's one of humility. And I think when we read the story today, we can see that the disciples have an issue with pride. They're the gatekeepers. They are the campaign managers, you could say, of Jesus' ministry. And they say, Jesus, you've kissed enough babies. It's time for us to move to the next town. It's time for us to move to Jerusalem. But Jesus wants to stay here with these kids. You can read this pride issue in between the lines, but you can also read it in the passage directly before this. And here's a really good practical tip for anyone struggling to read your Bible. If one of Jesus' parables or one of his stories don't really make sense to you, then the best thing you can do is read the passage before it and after it so you can unlock a greater understanding of the whole chapter. And if we go to the passage before this, we will see Jesus telling the story about a Pharisee and a tax collector at the temple. And he introduces the story this way. He says it is directed to some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everyone else. And Jesus is pretty direct in this parable. We have two characters, a Pharisee who is the good guy. He is supposed to be the religious one. And then we have the tax collector who is the sinner. And they both come to the temple to pray. And when the um, tax collector gets there, he goes off into the corner to pray by himself. But when the Pharisee comes to the temple, he immediately makes his prayer a show. And it's all about self-righteousness. He says, God, I am so good. I tithe twice a week. I fast 
thank God I'm not like all these other sinners that are here praying. Thank God I'm not like the criminals or the cheaters or like this guy, the tax collector. It's a very bold and self-righteous prayer. And you compare it to the um, tax collector who's in the corner and his prayer is simple and it is humble. And he says, forgive me, God, be merciful to me. I am a sinner. Compare those two prayers. One is a prayer of pride and self-righteous and another is a prayer of humility. And Jesus summarizes this entire parable this way. I tell you that this man, the tax collector, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. It's a pretty outrageous parable in general, and I think the Pharisee's prayer is so prideful that sometimes it's hard for us to relate because we think, oh, we're not that bad. But when I look at my own prayer life and my own faith journey, I do think there is some self-righteousness in there. I do think that deep down, there's a sinful part of me that thinks I'm more worthy of other people than God's love. Because of the good things I do, I am more lovable, especially when I compare myself to other sinners who look worse than me. But in this parable, our example isn't the religious man. It is the tax collector the one who isn't afraid to admit he's a sinner and repent. And this is how I would argue a child comes to Jesus. A child comes to Jesus humble. You might even say helpless, knowing that they have no gift to bring and all they can do is bring, them, bring themselves to the throne. Jesus is teaching us that we should all come to Jesus that way, helpless, Believing that the only way we are saved is by grace through faith in what Jesus did on the cross, not by anything we can do on our own. And right after this story, we have the story of the rich young ruler, which you guys have probably heard before. And this is the opposite side of the coin, right? The rich young ruler had all the wealth, power, and money that anyone could ever want, but he didn't get into the kingdom of God. And I believe it is because he didn't understand that he was helpless. He thought he could earn his way to God, but the children and the tax collector teach us that our way to God is an adoption into his family that we could never earn on our own. We are grafted into his family line by his grace, by his selection of us, by nothing else. Think about a kid when they come to their father or mother with one of those handmade cards they made at school, right? You've all seen these before. They have uh, like dried macaroni noodles glued to them and glitter like sprayed all over the card. And it says, dad, I love you. Probably like in a big heart that looks nothing like a heart. And when your kid brings you this card, the father or mother will always like hug their kid, say, I love you, and then hang it up on the refrigerator. But a parent does not hang up the card because of the art displayed right? They're not hanging up the art because it's a work of Van Gogh or some beautiful masterpiece. They hang up their card because who gave it to them? It was their child. They had a relationship with them. And in the same way, God doesn't care about the useless religion we bring him. 
What God cares about is us because we are his children and nothing we do can erase or change that. God's love for us is strong and undefeatable because it's a love for a child. And Jesus is calling us to receive him the same way, helplessly, humbly, knowing that God's love is freely given, not frantically earned. So childlike faith, right, invites others in. It shares with others. And last but not least, a childlike faith trusts Jesus at his word. A childish faith will make assumptions about God or what he's like, but a childlike faith trusts. And I think this component of trusting is the most important one we'll talk about this morning. Jesus ends his blessing of the children with this challenge for all those who are listening. He says, truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. If we don't receive Jesus like a child, we will never get in. And I think the most important aspect of receiving Jesus as a child is this radical trust. Think about a kid who trusts their parent, right? They trust the words of their parents so much that they believe they will never fail. Like whatever a parent says is the law. It is truth. Like if you're at a restaurant and a kid asks their parent, is this food spicy? And the parent says no, then the kid will eat it. If you're at the rodeo and you want to ride a roller coaster and you ask your parent, is this roller coaster safe? And your parent says yes, then they'll ride it. Or maybe you're learning to swim for the first time and you're scared to jump into the pool because you don't know how to swim, but you see your parent there in the water holding their hands out ready to catch you. You'll jump in the pool even though you don't know how to swim because you trust your father's word. You know he'll catch you. You know he'll save you even though you don't know how to swim. That is the radical trust that God is seeking from all of us. He wants us to trust him with everything that we have. Instead, we always make assumptions and try to do things our own way. The disciples do this all the time. In chapter 17, Jesus said, don't cause the little ones to stumble. In chapter 18, Jesus said humility was key. But time and time again, the disciples make assumptions about who God is and what he wants them to do. They take cues from the world and from themselves rather than God. And every time Jesus tells the disciples he has to die, he tells them three times in the gospel of Luke, three times that he must um, die on the cross and suffer. Every time he tells them, the disciples don't believe him. They get mad. They say, Jesus, this isn't how it's supposed to happen. How can we achieve victory in your death? But Jesus wants the disciples to trust him. They don't have to know the whole game plan. They don't have to know what's going to happen next. All they have to do is trust. And Jesus wants us to do the same thing, to take the posture of, the top of a child and jump in the pool, even if we don't know how to swim. Proverbs 3 teaches us the exact same truth in a very similar way. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him, and he will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes, but fear the Lord and shun evil. 
My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline. Do not resent his rebuke because the Lord disciplines those he loves. As a father to the son, he delights in. In Proverbs, God uses this exact same childlike imagery to talk about trusting God and submitting our will to him. We all want to be wise in our own eyes and win the world's approval. But Jesus just wants you to give in and depend on him. And dependency is a dangerous thing. If you're depending on your favorite sports team to win March Madness, or depending on a job to make you happy, or depending on a relationship to fulfill you, or depending on a person to make you whole, I'm sorry, but you'll always leave disappointed. But if you depend on a perfect God, then that will always lead to delight. Only by trusting in God can we remove this burden of feeling like we have to forge our own path and take on Jesus's yoke which is easy and light. The thing about trust is that trust always leads us to joy. I fully believe that, that if you're trusting God like a child, you will find the joy of God. We took our students about three weeks ago to the Forge Retreat in the Woodlands, and it was an incredible weekend. There was hundreds, like literally three or 400 kids all gathered in the woodlands, praising God's name. And it was just an incredible weekend where I saw God move in miraculous ways. And on the last night, we had like an hour and a half long worship set. And the kids were jumping up and down, raising their hands on their knees in prayer. And even like 80 of them came forward and shared their testimonies. And the incredible thing about these retreats is I always think I'm going so the kids will get something out of it. But every time I take our students, God teaches me something new. And this, this time I was in the back of the sanctuary. All the kids were up front and me and the old people were in the back. And um, I remember at one point during one of the songs, I just fell on my knees in prayer. And the same refrain kept, kept coming to my mind and it was a prayer. It was a prayer that said, God, I am jaded, but give me joy. God, I am jaded but give me joy. Because in that moment, I realized that I had just been running on fumes for a little bit. I had been just so jaded by the world, by ministry, by people, by the headlines, that I wasn't experiencing God like a joyful child anymore. I felt like God was a chore, a job, an obligation. But there in that sanctuary on the back in my knees, I felt God just take like a burden off my shoulder. And he returned the joy that had been missing for so long. I remembered what it was like to be a child. I remembered what it was like to experience God fully. Y'all, our faith in Jesus, it's not a job. It's not a chore. It's not an obligation. It's a joy. I promise you, if you have a childish faith where you exclude others and, and have a self-righteous view of the world and make assumptions, all that will lead to is a hardened heart. All that will lead to is you being jaded. But Jesus wants to invite us into a better way. He wants to show us a new posture, and that is the posture of a child, helpless, looking up to the Father, clinging on to him for all of his goodness.
We all want to grow up and, and be independent. But this morning, are you willing to grow young? Are you willing to trust Jesus at his word? Do you believe him when he cried out on the cross, it is finished? Do you believe that? Or do you try to add something else on top of it? In this jaded adult world, I think Jesus is asking all of us to be like children again. Will you join me in trying to do that? Would you pray with me? Father God, we thank you for this, this morning and just the privilege, the absolute privilege of opening up your word, God. I thank you for this reminder from scripture that we are to have childlike faith, God. You tell us that if we want to enter into the kingdom of God, if, you, if we want to experience you, then we have to do it like a child, helplessly, knowing we have no gift to bring. All we can do is accept you. So God, I thank you for this truth and I pray it inspires us to live like children this week. In Jesus' name, amen.